You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech, Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Dr. Laura Jaina. Uh, she's a pediatrician. She's also a, the author of a book called The Toddler Brain, and we're going to have a good conversation today. So, Dr. Jaina or Laura, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Good to join you. Yeah, so tell me, um, you know, you're a pediatrician, but it sounds like you're specialized. Uh, what's the focus of your work, you know, in the medical industry? What led you to, to writing this book on the toddler brain? Sure. Well, you know, interestingly, in my background, I'm actually, I come from the hard sciences world, you know, cellular molecular biology and neurosciences. And then obviously as a pediatrician, I decided to focus on children, partly because I love children. I mean, I kind of at the whole age range, but also because I tend to be sort of a root cause person. Like if we're really going to make a difference in people's lives and, you know, certainly for children, what we do to make them healthy and, and keep them well, um, serves them throughout their lifetime. And I also like to tackle challenges in a practical sense. So from a practical sense, helping parents and anyone caring for children figure out how to do that well is my broad area of focus. With respect to the toddler brain, I then started to tackle what's going on in the world today, what are challenges for parents, and how can I help? And you know that can span from everything from technology use to getting kids to brush their teeth and certainly getting them to learn how to sleep well. So, uh, so again, it kind of covers the spectrum. So, in regards to kids, I guess you know I, I, you know, I have kids. So, I guess when they were toddlers, yeah, it was a difficult time because you can talk to them, but they kind of, you know, they're not able to speak back, or they'll speak in one or two words, and you know, they're fussy <laughs> and they're wriggly, and they want to do all kinds of stuff, and you know, they get tired, and then they throw tantrums. So, you know, what's unique or specific about toddlers that you've learned, and what are some of the challenges people have? Well, you know, you sort of uh, set that one up really well in your comments because you've got a couple things at play there. You've got kids who are starting to become independent, right? Toddlers are now up and toddling and getting into things and active, but they're also at a developmental stage. And this is where I spend a good bit of my time kind of helping people understand what is normal development? What can you normally expect kids to do or what should you not expect them to do at a certain age? And as you said, we know toddlers may say one or maybe two words together, but they certainly don't communicate well enough to explain themselves when they're tired or cranky or fussy. And they also lack a bit of self-awareness. 
So they're less likely, some adults do too, but you know, <laughs> but toddlers lack the self-awareness to say, oh, you know what, I'm having this meltdown because I'm just so tired that I really probably should go to sleep early tonight. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Mm. So that's where you kind of almost, it's almost like a perfect storm if you're not aware of what what to expect and how to work with that. And part of that is understanding what's typical, like what, how much sleep do toddlers need? And the other is how to work with them to help them learn those healthy habits when they may not be aware of it themselves. So what are some misconceptions people have about toddlers? You know, let's start with, you know, how long do they need to sleep? And, you know, what other misconceptions cause friction between them and the parents? Sure. Well, you know, one of the biggest ones, and so, you know, every kid is different in terms of how much sleep they need. But honestly, and I always, my kind of my general parenting philosophy is never say never and never say always. But for the most part, I have yet to meet a toddler who doesn't need a really good long nap, if not still two naps a day. Okay, so either that one nice, nicely formed, you know, afternoon nap, or they might still, if they're closer to one, they might still be doing two naps a day. One of the mistakes that parents often make as kids get into that one to two, maybe three year old age range is that they assume that because their child for example, doesn't take a nap, doesn't, you know, resists going to sleep, doesn't fall asleep when you try to get them to take a nap, that they don't need it anymore. And especially in kids three and under, you know, four, you start to get some kids who may not, or they may sleep a nice long time at night. But it's pretty clear cut that kids, you know, toddlers absolutely do. And when you make that mistake and think that they don't need it anymore, not only does that mean that they end up short on sleep overall, but that makes them crankier and more resistant to things. And they actually sometimes have a harder time falling asleep at night because they're overly tired. And that's the irony, you know, that adds to the pain of all of it is the kids who most need sleep sometimes have the least ability to get themselves to go and, and, and lay down to go to sleep. Yeah, I've heard advice of, you know, babies or toddlers can self-soothe. And do you think that's good advice or bad advice? It doesn't seem like, you know, how they have the skills to self-soothe. It seems like they need help. Yeah. And, you know, this is where, first of all, every child is different. So, of course, we all as parents hear about the other parent who is so fortunate that they have a child who just goes right to sleep and sleeps through the night by, you know, three months of age and just wonderful sleeper. And that's great, right? Because that they, they know how to self-soothe and they never really have a problem. But what I'll add to what you say is um, it's important to think of helping a child learn how to self-soothe. So it's not something that we're all just naturally good at doing. And so I like to start with all parents by saying, think of learning to fall asleep independently and sleep through the night or take your nest as a learning process. And some people get it with, you know, some kids do great right off the bat. And for all the rest of the kids, you can then help set the conditions, right? Set up a bedtime routine, recognize that if the kids can learn to fall asleep early, like when they're infants, you know, you can kind, you can lock them and be caring, but you also want to say, listen, if you can lay your infant down and they just sort of look at their mobile and they just sort of lay there for a while and they kick their feet around and then they fall asleep, don't interfere, right? Because that ability, recognize that as a big step in the right direction. If they can learn to fall asleep independently, then it really increases the odds of a good night's sleep, of being a good napper, and all those other things that we all aim for. So what are some uh, unique phenomena to toddlers versus babies versus kids that are a little bit older? that, you know, parents need well, you help know, with or the kids need help with? Sure. One of the interesting things about toddlers, and you, you brought this up with their inability to really express themselves, 
you know, infants and toddlers, I like to describe something like, let's say, going to the grocery store, going to the library, you know, an outing, like an activity can feel for a very young child like a day at the amusement park. And if you or I think about how we feel after a really stimulating, exciting, challenging day, whatever it is, again, we may be the most tired and in the most need of sleep, and we have the, may have the most difficulty falling asleep. For toddlers, you again, you, what's sort of unique to them is they can't express themselves. They certainly are going to challenge you, and they're also at a stage where it's their job to challenge you, right? I mean, I would say it's a young child's job to test your limits. In fact, it's it's all children's jobs to test your limits as a parent. You know, if you say it's time to go to bed or something, it's your job to set some limits. So that's the other thing about that age is that is the age of budding independence. And independence means that if you tell me it's time for me to go to sleep, I'm going to say, no, it's not. I don't want to go to sleep. I'm not tired. Or you might not even say it because you're a toddler who doesn't speak in full sentences yet, but you might resist it. That's somewhat unique. I mean, you you know, when you get to older kids, they may push back or say they don't want to, but that's a completely different discussion than a toddler who doesn't have, you know, sort of what we would call the good sense to know that they need to sleep and then go along with it and, and kind of work on it on their own. You really have to work on making it a positive routine, um, set, you know, kind of be firm about it, but be supportive, not as in I'm angry because you won't go to sleep, but how can I make this happen? I'm going to support you, but we all are in agreement. You need to go to sleep. Well, what, what chronotype do toddlers have? Because I've heard that, you know, teenagers, they're just simply not geared to get up early morning. And so, you know, the time school starts for them is just not conducive. So you're going to get a lot of resistance and a lot of grogginess and problems. You know, how about toddlers? I, I see a lot of parents that want to put them to bed, you know, for the night at like seven o'clock or eight o'clock. And maybe that doesn't work for them. I don't know. You know, great question. You're hitting on something that a lot of parents actually don't always pick up on, but obviously as as somebody who follows this professionally, it's really intriguing to take into account or to be aware of how sleep cycles not only play into this, making it harder or easier to sleep at a certain time of, of day or night, but also how they change with age. And we sort of know this intuitively, right? Because you just described a typical pattern you know, a one or two-year-old or even a three or four-year-old, it's not uncommon to have them have what we consider as adults really early bedtimes, right? 7 or 8 p.m. Right. Um, And then we see, and the irony is, those are the kids who oftentimes, because they're young, they have later start, you know, kindergarten, uh, later school times, right? Because we say they're young and the, the school buses pick up the high school kids and then the middle school kids and then the elementary school kids so that you have them come in later, when it's ironic because they're the ones who tend to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier and teenagers um, naturally by their, you know, their cycles and sleep cycles tend to go to sleep much later. And if they have an early start time, they're just, that's really that we see that the other thing that's really pretty striking and, and worth noting is that we think of, you know, I often get asked how many hours, you know, so you've got your newborn sleep and then your one-year-old and then your two-year-old more typical patterns. But when we're talking toddlers, we're talking, 10 to 13 hours a night, right? Like, and, and sometimes, you know, you factor in your naps as they get older so that cumulative sleep in the day, you know, in a full day, in full 24 right. hours. That drops down, right? As you get into elementary school and middle school, the amount of sleep that, that kids need drops down. What's interesting and often missed by parents is that then you see this pick back up again in terms of the amount of sleep that kids heading into the teenage years need. And again, the problem at that age is that they will tell you they 
Like they think they know best already. It's not that they just aren't communicative, but they think they know enough to know that they don't need sleep when they really do. And those sleep needs go way back up again. So it's like a U shape. You know, you start with a lot of sleep needs, you know, infancy, toddlerhood, it decreases and then it goes right back up again in those, those uh, hmm. teen years. Yeah. And by the teen years, they're able to fight you and argue with you. Right. In some ways, it's the same. Right. It's almost like, but in some ways, it's different. And of course, in all of this, you know, talking about technology, um, one of the things that now has become a discussion across all ages, all the way down to infants, is is screen use. And there's really interesting studies about, first of all, the amount of, of time spent on screens can by just by sheer use of time mean that you're getting less sleep because you're spending that time on a computer, on a screen, on an iPad, whatever it might be. But there's also factors like, you know, blue light exposure, right? Where if you're exposed to the light from your screens, which is why there's now, for example, a night mode on an iPhone or an iPad, um, that's right. to get rid of the type of light that actually interferes, um, as you know, the research suggests that it interferes with sleep cycles so that you can throw off the natural cues. Because remember, from, from sort of a big picture standpoint, we're all sort of wired to be awake during daylight and be asleep at night. And if we fake out our bodies and our sleep cycles to think that it's daytime when it's, you know, midnight, but we're under the covers with an iPad, right? Um, That does not do good things for sleep cycles. And so as that evidence evolves, it's already clear. It's a bad idea on multiple levels to have kids going to sleep with screens and also to be using them even within, you know, a certain period of time before bedtime or excessive use that's displacing hours that would have been spent sleeping. Yeah, when I was little, I would stay up with like a flashlight and read books, you know, when I was eight, nine, 10, and then into teen years. But now, you know, if I was back at this time, I would have used an iPad or a phone and you're right, the blue light would have been much more disruptive than paper and, uh, you know, Yes, and, you know, it's it's interesting because as somebody who I've spent, you know, decades um, promoting early literacy, right? And I'm all about books at bedtime. It's actually a different discussion. Your brain is engaged differently when you're talking about what you're describing, which is, you know, the flashlight, which, first of all, the light's not shining in your face, right? It's at the book. And books are engaging, but they're not engaging in the same way where today's technology is where it's, you know, a lot of what kids are looking at, because they're not always reading, right? It's not like every kid is sitting in bed under the covers reading a book on their iPad, right? They're playing games or watching something. Those things are, are oftentimes designed, like the purpose of the design is to capture and hold your child's attention. And in fact, it's been said, one of the tech titans, you know, when the CEOs of the big tech companies said that their biggest competitors were YouTube, Netflix, and Sleep. Because what keeps competes right. for attention? They're all competing. And that tells you if you're asleep, then they're losing the battle. So they're going to create things on the tech. What if you could learn about the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers in a four-day experience co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss, Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, Suzanne Ryan of Keto Karma, Thomas Seyfried, uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, 
Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Ede, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're going to dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You'll get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative. Cedars-Sinai is accredited by ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit metabolichealthsummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must-not-miss seminar. Technology side that you would do oversleeping, and that's a serious problem. And in fact, you know, I'm a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics, and this is where the AAP, we've really put a lot of time and thought into this as we're doing this, what, you know, some people consider a massive experiment on children, you know, this generation of children growing up with technology on what is this doing to if they're falling asleep drinking, they now have that as an association with falling asleep. It's not nutritional necessity for, again, not every now and then there's a child who needs to. But for most one-year-olds, they don't need to drink as they're falling asleep to get enough of the nutrition they need. Now it's become a crutch. It's their way of falling asleep that they don't do well without it. That's what I mean when I say it's sort of like you sleuth out what are the factors. Well, if, if it's you know falling asleep drinking, then what if after you give your baby the breast or the bottle, you then do your bath time, right? Because now your baby's going to be awake. And then maybe you make books, your cue, but maybe the last book of the night, you have your baby in the crib or your toddler in the bed and say, okay, the last one, I'm going to sit here, I'll read it, but you kind of get to lay down. And then they learn to be calm and quiet, but not. And then you you, you go. That's the kind of thing that you, that you want to focus on is how do you help have kids learn how to do that independent sleeping? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. What is, you know, you still want to put your kid to sleep. So when is it bedtime ritual and when is it uh, encouraging a behavior that's, that stops them from sleeping on their own? Well, you know, the the ritual I typically recommend, okay, and I've included this. You know, I also, I've written several books, actually, and this is included in most of them. I wrote a book called Heading Home with Your Newborn from Birth to Reality. And the thing about books about newborns is, a lot of what you do when your child is very young can set the stage, right? You can't expect them to master everything when they're, you know, a few months old, but you can set the stage for what's going to make it easier later on. Okay. So a healthy bedtime routine, even when children are really young. And, and like I said, you know, a, a newborn needs to breastfeed every two hours, right? So chances are they're going to fall asleep while they're breastfeeding. But if you start to get into a routine, I am partial to the breast or bottle for the infants who are, you know, the young kids who are still doing that or, you know, whatever they're going to drink before at the end of the night, then doing the bath and brushing teeth, right? So you get your hygiene routine in there. I just finished today writing a blog about getting kids to brush their teeth. And the earlier you start making that a routine, you can start before kids have teeth and it's still a worthwhile exercise, right? And then you say, and then books and, and, 
because there's so much value to kids, not just learning to read, but learning to love to read, the shared experience of making bedtime the time to read books together. And it can be one, it can be three, it can be, I'll read some and then I'll leave some for you, um, which is a really good trick, by the way, for the kid who won't, who says they don't need to nap in childcare, for example, where they're required to lay down for a nap. Say, well, I'm not going to, I can't make you fall asleep, but why don't we do this? We'll put, give you a bunch of books and you can lay on your cot, right? And half the kids, at least, who say they don't need a nap, fall asleep within minutes. They've got a nice quiet activity, not disrupting anybody else. You've now encouraged book reading. So that that routine of making whatever the last meal or drink of the day is going to be, then separating it, right? So you, you do your bath or your, you know, your brushing teeth sort of routine, and then you make books your cue. And again, it's just that your goal isn't to rock your child to sleep with a book until you are absolutely certain they're snoring and sound asleep. It's you make it nice and quiet. You set the mood. Everybody calms down, even if you had an active day. And then you get to separate while they're still awake, but in a nice mode where they can now learn to fall asleep independently. Well, is there anything wrong with staying with them until they're asleep? Or does that create the necessity well, of you being there? You know, I have met, I mean, I've seen plenty of kids who that's been their routine and it's not a problem, right? They sleep well. They sleep through the night. That's fine. What tends to happen, though, is that whether it's, rocking them to sleep, reading them to sleep, you know, feeding them to sleep, that, that lots of times it catches parents off guard because for a while it works, right? Let's say for, you know, a six-month-old. And then all of a sudden at nine months, that child, and it, sometimes it's when they, they discover, for example, a nine-month-old who discovers how to pull themselves up in a crib, and now they're wide awake. And what happens is they're wide awake, and now they don't know how to get back to sleep again without what they had when they went to sleep the first time whatever that may be. And this is where you can fill in the blank because for some kids, it's they were driven around the block in their car seat. And for some kids, it's they were rocked or held or, you know, fed or whatever it is. So I tend to err on the side of, listen, I am all for the warm attachment, time spent together, cuddling, holding your child on your lap. But there is that opportunity when they're getting tired to say, okay, well, here, I'm going to put you down. I'm going to read, we can read one more book. I'll leave you with some books if the child doesn't want to be, you know, left without, you know, here's a couple board books for you and you can keep them with you, right? Because if they fall asleep with them, they're still safe, right? And, um, and then you, you don't run the risk of them then becoming dependent later on. Some kids never do, but I see a lot of kids where you think it's fine, like it's not my problem, like other kids have the problem, but mine doesn't. And then it becomes a problem and you have to sort of retrain them to be able to fall asleep independently later on. You know, ours, we, you know, my son, we had to drive a certain route and he would fall asleep at the same time every night and then that stopped. And then, you know, they seem to go through phases with that kind of stuff, but for a while, that's what we relied on. So. Sure. And, you know, this is where it's, I've really spent a lot of time making sure that I'm all about practical parenting. And so when I say all this, I always have to say, listen, the reason I focus on these things is because not because I'm telling parents what they do wrong. It makes perfect sense why we do what we do right? If we want our kids to sleep and they're not, we do what we can. And if it works, we do it. But sometimes it's a short-term fix. And then there are ways to do it where it's a long-term fix, right? And so, you know, it's, it's certainly there are times, and I always use the example of when a kid gets sick, right? So if you're, you know, two or three-year-old comes in your room and they say they're not feeling good and you feel their forehead and then you take their temperature and, oh, yes, they've got a fever and all, and you want them, they've learned to sleep independently, but now they want to come and get in bed with you. And I've got parents who say, I don't want that to happen. I don't want them to be dependent on sleeping with me, but they're sick. You you make right. your choice, right? Because it's a short-term thing. And I did have one of my three children 
always wanted to sleep with us when he got sick. He'd get very high fevers, just, you know, sort of like fluke, nothing more serious, but he'd get high fevers. He was uncomfortable. He'd come in our room. And we, my husband and I knew for a fact that it was going to take us like two weeks to get him extracted from our room after he was better again. Okay. But we still decided to do it, right? He was sick. I'm a pediatrician. My husband's a doctor. We wanted to keep an eye on him. So that is where you make your choices. What I like to do is make it so that parents aren't falling into a trend right? That they weren't aware that that was a problem because we all make our choices and see at the time we were like, well, that's well worth it because we're all exhausted and we all want to sleep. So he can sleep in our room now and we'll just get it worked out later. We'll have to deal with it and get him back in his own room later on once he's better. Yeah. We even counted that too. You know, once they're in your room, it's very hard to get them out, both dogs and kids. Oh yeah, right. Exactly. And I try, I try hard not to compare dogs and children, but I have to say sometimes sort of for these basic concepts. Yeah, exactly. And it's it sort of, I always say it's human nature and sometimes it's animal nature too, right? Like it's living things and sleep and eat sort of, of principles apply. So yes, you said it, not I. <laughs> yeah, no, I got you. Uh, any other complaints that parents have frequently that uh, you need to address? Um, You know, I think we've kind of touched on the big ones because, and if I, if I sort of run down through the list, one is making sure that parents know, and there's lots of good resources. You know, the American Academy of Pediatrics has healthychildren.org as a website. Um, I probably have some blogs I've written over the years on my own website, mydrlaurajiana.com. But make sure you know what normal sleep is because it changes over time, right, with age and all. Um, Take into account a child's behaviors, you know, and, and, and sort of milestones and things like their developmental stages. When a child masters a new developmental stage, it could be standing up in the crib. It could be a new burst of language or walking. Sometimes that's accompanied with now they don't sleep well. And I liken that to being so excited about something that it's hard to get yourself shut down and, and going to sleep. So expect, so first knowing what's normal patterns. The second is making sure your expectations fit with what you, you know, the is that that is oftentimes the cause of what people see as completely separate um, food problems, right? Because a child who's drinking a lot of, of milk, especially whole milk, because most kids under the age of two are still in whole milk, that really doesn't do well for your appetite, right? And, the, and, you know, as kids get to be the age of one and they switch over to a cup, so they don't drink as much typically out of a cup as a bottle, they end up naturally sort of cutting down the volume of milk they get, which then makes them more open to learning to eat and accept solid foods. For a child who has a sleep problem, right? So they haven't learned to sleep through the night. They're waking up at their light sleep cycles and a parent interprets that as, as thirst and gives them an eight ounce bottle. And this is where I hear a lot of parents will say to me, but they are thirsty because they drink the whole thing. What I've learned to say is, listen, I've never been served warm milk in my life aside from hot chocolate, but never been served warm milk. But if somebody came to me in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep and I was frustrated because I couldn't sleep and they said, oh, you know what? I'm so sorry you can't sleep. Here's a cup of warm milk. I might actually just drink it and go back to sleep, right? That doesn't mean that's right. what I needed or why I was up and crying. That is a mistake. And again, that one very closely ties to some of the sort of, they don't connect the two, but some of the, the picky eaters won't eat anything, refuses food um, problems. It's because oftentimes those middle of the night feedings are really throwing off um, their calories and what they're getting, and they're not getting a balanced diet that way. Okay. And their body has to digest that milk too, so that would interfere with them sleeping yep. and recovering. Yeah. And the other one to get to your point, just when you say, what is the thing that, that what are some of those things that people miss um, in terms of misinterpreting or missing the signs or something? The one that also comes to mind is thinking um, that a child who is hyper 
is not tired because sometimes the most tired, fatigued child is the one that kind of goes into overdrive, right? (laughs) From a brain standpoint, I would say it's almost like all the neurons start firing off, right? Because there's not as good control and stuff. And, And parents say, yeah, but they're not tired. And sometimes the ones who protest the most, who are the most hyper are the ones who are actually quite tired. And that's true both at home. And, and, you know, as somebody who owned a childcare center for 10 years, I had 200 kids coming to my center and the kids who had a hard time taking naps oftentimes were kids who did, were not used to even putting themselves or being put in the conditions conducive for sleep, right? They hadn't had a routine and, and all you had to do is really just get them to be convinced that they needed to be on a cot and be quiet, right? They could, they could do something quietly. And that, those are the kids who would fall asleep so quickly, but they're also the ones who are bouncing off the walls saying they weren't tired misinterpreting that bouncing off the walls as believing them that they're not tired is is a big mistake. Just like thinking that that all kids who say they don't need a nap after the age of three don't, as opposed to some of them do and they just don't know how to do it well. Yeah, I can hear echoes in my head of kids saying, I'm not tired, yelling and screaming, and and obviously they are, so... Yeah, so you can imagine exactly what I'm talking about. And that's where you just don't want to miss the cues that they actually are. But they, you know, then you can feel bad for them, right? They're protesting really hard. And you know how tired they are. And you just need to find ways that will get them into a, uh, you know, kind of an environment that's conducive, which is why I love Reading books, you can use a quiet voice. They have to be quiet to hear it. It's nice and warm, and you can maybe have quiet music on or you, whatever you want to do, but to try to get them in a, in more in a mode where they actually are able to fall asleep. All right, very good. So what are some resources for people? You mentioned a few, but let's summarize them. Sure. So, you know, I like to make sure, you know, people tend to like, these days, they tend to like to go to the web. And so I'm, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm happy recommending the American Academy of Pediatrics parenting site, right? The one that's that's geared towards parents and caregivers. That's healthychildren.org. There's also a really good um, site called kidshealth.org that's run by the Nemours Foundation and a children's hospital. Um, My website has some blogs. It's not specific to sleep, but I've written on the subject certainly, and that's um, drlaurajana.com. Um, the other thing is, you know, in the context, not everybody just says, hey, my child has a sleep problem, but in the context of newborns or feeding children or them learning skills, all of my books touch on the issue of sleep because it's so fundamental to everything else. So those are Heading Home with Your Newborn from Birth to Reality. I've got a book about feeding kids, you know, called Food Fights, Winning the Nutritional Challenges of Parenthood, but there's a check section on bedtime routines and all. And then, um, and then this, my newest book, this, the toddler brain nurture the skills today that will shape your child's tomorrow. I talk about the skills that are going to serve kids well when they get to kindergarten and problem solving and getting along with others. But I, in every chapter, I address how that show, how, you know, what, how sleep plays a role in, in developing those skills and how important it is. So there's lots of ways to find really good information about sleep, both specifically, and then also as it relates to some of those common challenges. Like I said, I've addressed, you know, newborns, it always comes up. And then also with feeding kids and with getting them to be in a mode where they're actually in a good, in good shape to learn. None of us learn well when we're sleep deprived. I don't care how young or old you are. So that's the other angle to take. Very good. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier, 
Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.